listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. We sounded good today. Uh, I don't often stop singing during worship uh, because for as poorly as I sing, I do enjoy singing. I enjoy worshiping with you, uniting our voices in praise. And uh, for just a few minutes over there, I... I just stopped singing and listened, and um, love that. Love to worship with you. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For some of you by now, your Bible may be well-worn around 1 Corinthians here. Uh, we started this series at the beginning of the year, uh, and I know uh, for some of you, maybe you're going, I- I've got a little bit of 1 Corinthians fatigue um, I, if you're feeling that, then certainly I can feel that because I'm immersed in it every week in preparation for our time together. Uh, I will say that I saw where another pastor, uh, not locally, of course, but uh, was in the book of Romans, I think, for three years. Okay, so I don't want to hear any complaining about how long we've been in 1 Corinthians, okay? <laughs> Uh, we do plan to, to wrap up the book of 1 Corinthians uh, this summer, Lord willing, and launch into a new series on home and family, um, Lord willing, in the fall. And so have some new initiatives and different things that we're going to be looking at uh, in that season. Uh, but let's take our Bibles once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're now in the middle uh, of this 10th chapter. Paul has been dealing with the problems that uh, a misunderstanding of, of Christian freedom can bring in the life of a church. And I, I'll remind you that in, in verses 1 through 13 of this 10th chapter, Paul focused on the problem of presumption. Um, and so the Corinthians were in danger of thinking themselves free to live however they pleased. They were kind of presuming upon the grace of God. Now that I've now that I'm in Christ, now that I've got this new relationship, I, I, my sin's forgiven, now the way that I live really doesn't matter. And Paul points out that that's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, as we move further into the chapter in verses 14 through 22 today, he addresses the problem of compromise. That is, seeking to follow Jesus on one hand while at the same time dabbling in the world. And then in the rest of the chapter, Paul addresses the problem of legalism. And so you have these two extremes, uh, this license almost to do whatever I want, uh, this, this freedom uh, in Christ. But then on the other end of that spectrum is this legalism, this unnecessary uh, overreacting restrictiveness. Uh, and he will talk about how that is a problem as well. And so presumption last week, compromise this week, and then as we move uh, further into this 10th chapter, we'll look at the subject of legalism. I will not be preaching next week. We plan to be uh, on vacation. We're heading out to Boise, Idaho this week, and so Griff will be preaching uh, here in my place uh, on Father's Day next Sunday, and so you can look forward to that, and we'll come back to the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, this morning's message is really fairly simple. Uh, I'm not a very complex guy anyway, but there are really just two main points Uh, in our text this morning. There is the glory of communion, and then there is the gravity of compromise. So let's look at verses 14 through 22 uh, together here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I hope that you'll follow along as I read, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's fine. You should find it uh, up on the screen. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's first consider the glory of communion. Uh, the word in the original language is the word koinonia. It's a word that maybe you've heard. We often translate that word as fellowship, uh, the idea of sharing something in common. We want to, uh, to participate together in the life of the church in a true koinonia-type fellowship. We are told to do life together. I was uh, challenged this past week by, uh, by another preacher and his teaching, and he was uh, making the point that God intends for us, and, and the picture that we have in Scripture, and, and Paul even alludes to it here, is this concept of being a body, a body of believers. And a body, of course, has many parts. Paul talks about that even here in 1 Corinthians. Those parts are to be together. At the risk of sounding gruesome, uh, if, if those parts are, are detached from the body, they become what? remains. Okay? Well, well, Jesus is not returning for remains. No, he's returning for a bride. And so over and over again in scripture, you see this concept, this principle of us doing life together. You see all these one another's uh, in, in scripture. And so you have this idea here of communion, of fellowship together. There's something about a meal that binds people together. One of the things that uh, we often talk about in our culture, particularly as it relates to the holidays, is, of, of course, being with those we love, being with family and friends and those kind of things. But, but one of the things that we quickly move toward, even in that gathering, is what? Food. I mean, one of the things that we look forward to the most about Thanksgiving and Christmas, for example, is the food that we enjoy together. That's just a part of, part of our culture. It's part of our culture that we can demonstrate our love for people with food. That's one of the reasons when, uh, when a family uh, experiences the loss of a loved one, for example, many times uh, we come alongside to support them, to express our love for them, uh, to express our sympathy to them even, and we do that with food. Maybe you'll bring a dish, uh, maybe you'll, uh, but you, you, you bring food in order to do that. We express our affection and our care for one another with a meal. That's, that's part of the social fabric that kind of binds us together. Some people are better at this than others. My nana, my, my dad's mom, uh, was an amazing cook. And one of the ways that she expressed her love for her family was to feed them. Um, I, I mean, even in preparation for this message, I was thinking about her macaroni and cheese. I'm talking about the kind that when you lift your fork up off the plate, you bring with it a string of legit real cheese. You know what I'm saying? That's a good place for an amen right there, by the way. Hey, Amen. My, my, my Nana knew that I love chicken fried steak. I still do. Um, probably too much. I love chicken fried steak. She, she knew that so much. She assumed that Mikey 
would not want to eat just one chicken fried steak, but would probably enjoy two or three. And so it would not be uncommon for us to be finishing up a meal. I'm stuffed. And my Nana's like, Maggie, don't you want another chicken fried steak? Yeah, go ahead and bring it on, Nana. You know, it's just like, I mean, that's how she expressed her love for us. And, and, and that was very clear. That was very much the case in Paul's day even. When you shared a meal with someone, it was often about your loyalty, your association, your affinities, your connections. Having a meal established a bond with people, probably in, in ways even more profound and even more significant than in our own culture. Why do you suppose it was such an issue with the religious leaders of Jesus' day that he ate with sinners? Was it the eating that was the issue? Look at this guy, he's eating food. That, that wasn't the issue. The, the issue was that he was eating with sinners, with the marginalized, the less desirable. Because in their culture, that, 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 that created this bond. Uh, and so we see that whole idea here. Um, we, we will understand that, of course, even in our own culture. It's very much the case in Paul's day. And really, it's kind of the operating assumption behind verses 14 through 22. Now understand, whenever we think of the Lord's Supper, communion... Uh, whatever you may call it there, whatever you're more accustomed to. We don't typically, in, in our culture today, think of that as a meal. Okay, so whenever you see that language in Scripture, just kind of understand what, what's happening here. The sacred meals, uh, whether they were meals in church, in a, in a church setting, a gathering of believers, or uh, the similar pagan meals uh, that took place in the temples of that day, they established a bond between those who participated, the worshiper, the spiritual reality uh, that, that's being invoked there. And so the concern uh, in, in, in this particular section of Scripture is the issue of idolatry. Remember, we always say it this way. In our interpretation of Scripture, we want to understand it in its historical context. This cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the Corinthians to whom Paul wrote. Uh, remember this in your interpretation of Scripture. Every Scripture has one basic primary interpretation. That is, who wrote it originally, to whom was it written, and for what purpose? Some Scriptures have a prophetic interpretation. Not all. Okay? And, and many Scriptures have multiple applications. Now, we often get into trouble when we pull a verse of Scripture out of its historical grammatical context, and we try to manipulate it in a way that it applies to, to our pet thing or whatever. And you're seeing that a lot today as it relates to, for example, the nation of Israel and the United States of America. Okay, so we always want to study Scripture in its original context. And so as we do that, we, we kind of back up here for a moment, even to the verses that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks. And I remind you that the Apostle Paul has just said in verse number 13 here, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then he says, in connection to that, therefore, in light of what I've just said, in light of what I'm teaching you here, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is a text about idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the concern here. And everything else Paul says in this chapter is designed to show why that is so very urgent, why it's necessary, why it's important. Because again, at the end of the previous section in verse 13, he talks about this way of escape. Well, now he's essentially saying, when that way of escape comes, make sure you take it. Make sure you take it. 
You ever find yourself uh, maybe on a trip uh, and, and you've, you've plugged in your destination or your GPS and everything and you're, you're clicking along there pretty good and all of a sudden you look up ahead and you see a whole bunch of brake lights. I, I know you've been there, right? And so if you can many times, you will get off the highway. If there's an exit nearby, you'll say, man, I'm, I'm avoiding this. I, I'm, I'm escaping all this traffic. Well, what Paul is essentially saying is God is going to be faithful. He's going to give you a way out of this thing. He's going to give you an off-ramp, but you sure better take it. Now, there have been more than a few times that I thought to myself, nah, let's just stick it out. It doesn't look like this is going to last very long. And then 30 or 40 minutes later, I'm still sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic, you know? I think that's sometimes what happens to us as it relates to, to temptation. Paul says, don't try and tough it out. Don't try and explain it away. Don't try and just kind of push through this. Get out of there. Flee from idolatry. Run from it. And he reasons with them in light of Scripture. So you'll notice here that Paul does not make some overly emotional appeal in his effort to persuade them to flee idolatry. He doesn't provide you know, a list of pragmatic reasons that will compel them to conform to his personal agenda. No, he appeals to their reason, and you see that in verse 15. He says, I speak to sensible people. In other words, I think you can think this through. Judge for yourselves what I say. Engage your brain. See if what I'm saying is what God is saying. And I would say that to you every week that we gather as we have. The worst thing that you could possibly do is come to worship every week, sit here with your Bible open, listen to a sermon, and just be content every week to leave here having just been spoon-fed by Pastor Mike. Okay? Be like the Bereans who check what even what I'm saying with the Scriptures. Is this consistent? Is our pastor preaching a biblical message, or is he just up there spouting off his own opinion about a bunch of stuff? It's the reason that we want to be a church that is biblically based. That's biblically based. We want to be able to learn the Word of God together. And so Paul is appealing to them in that sense. He's saying, in light of all of these things, all of these challenges, I want you to think this through. And Paul knows that so many of our problems, so much of our sins, so much of our compromise that can easily infect the Christian lives comes as a result of us just not thinking. We're just not thinking. The, the fundamental principle is this. You cannot love what you do not know. And so it is important for us to know the Word of God. We have this notion nowadays kind of floating around out there that biblical Christianity is some sort of a religion where you've got to check your brains at the door. And certainly we understand the value and the importance of faith. There are a lot of things about the faith and about Scripture itself that I don't understand. Some things I have to accept by faith. Some things in my, my little limited ability to, to reason some of these things, through, I, I, I can't make it all fit together perfectly that I can completely understand it. Like the Trinity, for example. How we have a, a, a one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I know that truth... <laughs> But I don't know that I can fully explain that, the hypostatic union, how Jesus Christ, fully God and at the same time, fully man. And so, yes, there is faith, but at the same time, God intends for us to use the brains that he has given us. And so I hope that you do that. I hope that you think. I hope that you think things through. I hope that you reason. Scripture says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. 
Uh, And so with that exhortation very much in mind, to engage our brains, to reason, I want us to kind of examine Paul's argument together here. Notice that he starts uh, in verses 16 and 17, and he wants us to see why idols are so very dangerous. But he starts, interestingly enough, by talking about the Lord's Supper. Now, fundamentally, that's not what this text is about so much, and he's going to address that a little bit later in this letter to the Corinthians. But he says this. He's using this important example in talking about communion, about koinonia, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul is teaching us here that the Lord's Supper establishes and deepens a real spiritual bond. I love the fact that he uses this word participation. So Paul teaches us, it establishes a fellowship, a a communion, a participation with Jesus Christ in his body and in his blood. There's a, a vertical plane or a vertical aspect to this communion, to the, the, the Lord's Supper even. But also in verse 17, he establishes a horizontal plane. We are, though many, one in Jesus Christ as we share in the Lord's Supper. This is part of the reason that we, we do not believe that the Lord's Supper is something that we should do just individually. Okay, now, it was a... It was a, a an issue that we had to address as a pastoral team. Our elders got together back during uh, some of the shutdown in the early days of COVID uh, back last spring, and you know, everything pretty much is online. And we're like, how can we together observe the Lord's Supper in this remote world that we find ourselves in right now? And churches were doing it all different. Some churches had a drive-through opportunity. They had a, a chain where you could drive through and pick up the elements, and then you could do that. That you know, the next Sunday on maybe maybe you participated in one of those. I'm not saying it would be sinful for you to do so or anything like that, but we just felt that it was best for us to not try to do that. Okay, what we actually envisioned in some of our conversations was people grabbing some goldfish crackers and some Dr Pepper and like, hey, we're doing the Lord's Supper. You know, it's like. Um, and while we recognize there's nothing especially magical about the elements or something like that, or the, you know, the, the juice that we have and the wafers that we have, or just th- that's not the point. The point is this is something that is to be shared together. Okay? There's this vertical, this vertical plane, and there's this horizontal plane as it relates to the Lord's Supper. And so the, the meaning of the Lord's Supper travels along these two planes simultaneously. And to understand it, we need to examine both of them. So there's this idea of communion with Christ. Communion with Christ. Again, Paul uses this word participation, or the word participate, to describe what is going on here. Actually, in verses 16 through 20, he uses it four times. It's at the heart of what he understands is taking place at the Lord's Supper. And again, the Greek word is koinonia. We sometimes translate it fellowship or sharing or partnership or communion. That's why we call it, many times we'll call it a communion service. We have communion. We participate. We have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And a mysterious supernatural reality takes place when believers clinging to Christ by faith come to the Lord's table and eat the bread and we drink the cup. Now I'm not talking about transubstantiation. It's a Roman Catholic teaching that says the miracle of the Mass is that the the bread and the wine literally, miraculously become literally the body and the blood of Christ. That is not what we teach. 
That's not what I'm suggesting here. But understand this, as Jesus himself puts it in John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, at first glance, some people would go, what in the world is that? That's kind of gruesome, isn't it? Almost sounds cannibalistic. I mean, that's, that's some weird language there, right? And sometimes Christians in different traditions, they try to remove the mystery and explain it away and make it less uncomfortable and less weird. And, and it is a little strange. So, so we, we want to, to sort of sanitize it a little bit many times. But that's the language of Scripture, And in fact, we need to embrace the glory and the mystery and the significance of what we enjoy by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as it is communicated to us at the Lord's table. We enjoy Christ himself is the point. That's what it's all about. We participate together in his body and blood. We feast by faith upon Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, nourished by Jesus, who is true food, true drink for our souls. Sustained by him, helped heavenward through him. He is our sustenance, our satisfaction, our very life. That's the point that he's making here. And then he goes to this horizontal plane, this communion with each other. Along with this Christward supernatural component of the supper, there's a, a one another supernatural component to the Lord's Supper. We have communion, not just with Jesus. But because we are one with Christ, we have communion with him, but we also have communion with each other. Verse 17 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, presumably, in the church at Corinth, um, practically speaking, they very likely had one single loaf of bread, as it were, in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. It would have been broken Uh, into pieces or morsels uh, so that each individual could share in that one, quite literally, that one loaf of bread. Uh, We had a guy a number of years ago at a previous church who, uh, uh, his name was Troy Drollinger, and Troy had committed to memory um, a lot of scripture. And he would come in and he would do what's called a living Lord's Supper. He would take 12 of the men from your congregation. He had uh, biblical costumes for them. Uh, He would go through about an hour, hour and a half of preparation with them, and he would literally quote from Scripture that entire section of the Lord's Supper, of the Last Supper. And then they would serve the entire congregation. So churches do these things all a little bit differently. Uh, We understand that. I've had people come to me and say, we didn't do it just right, and all all these various things. Understand what he is saying here. The whole concept is this oneness that we have in Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons that whenever we do participate in the Lord's Supper together, I will typically say, while it is not our belief or our practice that you have to be a member of First Baptist Church Van Alstine, it is important to us, however, that you have a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. Because it is that which unites us. That's what's most important. And again, we're living in a day when there's so much that divides us 
I mean, we can all come up with a really long list of things that divide us today, from politics to pandemics to, I mean, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And the, the, the sad truth is that has not just crept into our, our, our body of churches, our cooperation of churches that I mentioned earlier. I mean, it has become pervasive in many respects. It's insidious. And so what we've got to do as a church family is consistently be looking not to what divides us, but what unites us. And that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why my prayer for those 17 some thousand messengers who will be in Nashville this week, that they come away more unified than we currently are. Unified around the gospel, the mission that unites us. Again, we're, we, we do all do things a little different. Now, I'll be quite frank with you. There are some Southern Baptist churches I wouldn't attend. Okay, I, I like to say we got a pretty big tent, okay? And in that tent, we got some weird cousins. Okay, we just do, okay? Maybe they, they focus on things a little differently. They, they believe some things a little differently. Typically, those things are secondary in nature, third-tier issues. We don't see them all exactly the same. But what unifies us is Christ, the gospel, the sufficiency of Scripture, those are the things that unite us. And I hope that you find that true even here on the local level. Even in conversations with some of you over the last several weeks, I recognize that, that you all come from various backgrounds. Okay? I have a particular background that, that was formative in my early years and things, and there's some things about that that I, I, I would say I kind of reject today. There are some other things that uh, along the way, by the grace of God, I've learned. I've come to better understand. And, and so, you know, and you, everybody's growing in their faith and in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even here at the local level, we're not looking for uniformity. We're looking for unity. For unity. And, and we explain that in our new member orientation. We talk about how there are certain things that we can hold in an open hand. Okay? Like eschatology, the study of the end times. Right now, it seems like we preachers are getting a lot of questions about that. You know, who, who, do you think that person's the Antichrist? Do you think that thing is the mark of the beast? Do you, I mean, you get all those kinds of questions. Okay, that, that comes typically from a particular eschatology. Okay, as you study, you read Revelation, you go, I, I've got that pegged. I know what that is. And so we, we have varying views on some of those things. But what we have to be unified in is that the Bible is the very word of God, that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh who died a substitutionary death for you and for me. And the only way that we can be reconciled to holy God is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's non-negotiable. That's non-negotiable. So what do we see here in terms of God's action in the Lord's Supper? If there's something much more important than our action in the Lord's Supper, our remembering, our thinking, our pondering, our, our, our meditating, and we tend to focus on that a lot. In fact, most Lord's Supper tables, if you're familiar with a traditional sort of Lord's Supper table, what does it typically say on the front of it? This do in remembrance of me. And we want to focus on the remembering aspect of it and everything, and that is, that is super important. But if we really begin to grasp all of that, wouldn't we come to communion with a fresh expectation and an eagerness? This is not the same old, same old. Christ is here to give himself to you afresh, to nourish and sustain you and keep you. Don't you know when you come to the Lord's Supper, you come with a sense of your own bankruptcy? with new urgency, with new hunger for the only one who can satisfy and respond to your sin and your need 
When you come looking to meet Jesus, that's the point that Paul is making here. And this whole concept, again, of one body in Christ, if we are bound together as one body, that changes everything. Paul is teaching us to renew our fellowship, to strengthen our bonds. You belong to me, I belong to you. Together, we belong to Jesus Christ. It is the the family table. We come together. I think whenever you look at, uh, again, the world in which we live, you go, man, we've got to find these things that, that bind us together, that unify us here. Paul really wants us to see the glory of communion. It's not something we do for God, some tool that we're using to help ourselves think about Jesus merely. It's something God does in Christ by the Holy Spirit for us, but supernaturally and really when we eat the bread, we drink the cup, believing the gospel, clinging to Christ, he comes to, to strengthen us and to sustain us. It expresses, yes, symbolically, something that ought to be practically expressed each day in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. The New Testament is filled with one another language. One another language. And I think sometimes, even in our observance of the Lord's Supper many times, we focus too much on the individualistic aspect of it. We view it as, why well, it's just this little quiet, private time that I need to have with Jesus. And I think that comes from the text that talks about examining our own hearts and so forth and all those things. But I think more and more we need to view it as something that we do together as the body of Christ. It pictures for us what it is that unifies us. And so Paul uses this glory of communion to make a very strong point here. And again, the whole issue he's addressing is idolatry. So hang in there for a moment. Okay, point number two. The gravity of compromise. You look at verses 18 through 22. Now Paul has established that this This simple meal of bread and juice is not an empty ritual. There's something profound, something spiritual taking place, a real fellowship with Christ. Now that he's established that, he fundamentally says the same goes for the other sacred meals that were taking place up the street at the pagan temple. But before that even, he uses exhibit A. Remember, all the way through chapter 10, you'll remember he's he's been using Israel's experience As an example, in the wilderness, they came out of bondage in Egypt over and over again. They disobeyed the Lord. They fell into what? Pagan idolatry, into sin. And in verse number 18, that's almost certainly what the Apostle Paul has in mind. He's thinking still about Exodus chapter 32. We talked about that some last week. Moses, again, up on the mountain receiving the law. The people growing impatient at the foot of the mountain. They ask Aaron to make an idol for them. He constructs this golden calf, builds an altar in front of it. And again, verse number 6 here in chapter 10 reminds us that the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play as part of their worship before the altar. It was gross idolatry. And Paul is telling them, just as communion is not an empty ritual, neither is eating at the pagan idols an empty thing. Those who eat of the altar participate in all that the altar signifies and means. Something sinister, something something wicked. This was true for Israel in the wilderness. It was true for the Corinthians. They were in danger of this being true for them. And it certainly is true for us today. There's an incredible application here. 
So if you've been with us as we've kind of worked through Paul's letter here to the Corinthians, you'll remember that back in chapter 8, verse number 4, Paul had agreed with the Corinthians that idols are nothing more than a lump of wood or stone. Nothing to that. The Corinthians were saying an idol has no real existence. They're empty things. They're not real gods. They're nothing. So isn't Paul here, is he now contradicting himself in chapter 10? Is he implying that that idols are in fact real after all? No, Paul's already ahead of you on that, okay? He's anticipating, you you, you may may be suggesting that. And so he anticipates that objection because you look at verse number 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, that's not what I'm saying. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so what he's essentially saying is this very clearly, idolatry in any form is not harmless. Idolatry in any form is not harmless. Now, maybe you have a difficult time making the connection, connecting the dots between our culture and that culture. You're like, pastor, like, we, we don't have any idols set up, you know, at the house. We're not, we're not worshiping, you know, a a hunk of wood or a hunk of stone or anything like that. But again, if we're completely honest, our hearts fundamentally are little idol factories. We tend to give more attention to the things of this world many times than we do the things of God. That's idolatry. And so the, the idol, yeah, it's a lump of wood or stone and that's all. It's not, but idolatry, Paul is saying here, is not harmless Do not be deceived into false worship. It is not nothing that you are worshiping. Now, certainly there's no such thing as Apollo or Artemis or Krishna or Ganesh or any other, the millions of false gods that have been invented by human superstition over the ages. And the little G God that you and I create for ourselves is not the God who is there, the God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the truth is this, if we dabble in those things, if we become idolatrous, Paul says standing behind the deception remains a real spiritual presence. Satan and his demons are real. Now don't don't hear something that I'm not saying, okay? I'm not one who believes that there's a demon or devil behind every bush, Okay, some of you, you start getting a runny nose and you're like, the next thing you know, man, you're casting out the demon of colds and all this sort of, that's not, that's not what I'm saying here. Okay, but I'm also not one who believes that the devil is some cartoonish type character with horns and a, you know, a, a forked tongue and a tail and a pitchfork that sits on your shoulder and says, steal the cookie, man. Okay, no, the enemy's very real. That's why scripture says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? And so idolatry is not harmless. Evil is real. And Paul is saying it's not safe to play with it, to dabble in it. So think of these Corinthians. They're they're, they're one day sitting at the Lord's table, Understanding what it represents, what it means to them, what a powerful picture that is. And then, then maybe the very next day, they're in some sort of a business meeting, and they're at the temple of Apollo or Artemis, and maybe they're there with clients. And, and so in all of that, they're, they're invoking that day, whichever patron god, their business associate, uh, might want to invoke that day. And so as a matter of compromise, they're like, 
I'm okay with that. And Paul's like, that's not harmless stuff right there that you're dabbling in. That's not harmless stuff. No, Paul says in verse number 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Don't kid yourself that you can compromise with the world and at the same time faithfully follow Jesus Christ. You can't do it. So don't deceive yourself into thinking, and again, we can come up with this rather lengthy list of things that people are turning their attention to today, a lot of it very self-centered. You hear a lot of this language today, oh, just you know, find the strength within yourself. Find the energy within yourself. It's all this, this kind of language. It's very humanistic, very man-centered. No, trust your heart, follow your heart, all of those sorts of things. We can't do that. The Bible says the human heart's desperately wicked. Who can know it? That is a colossally bad plan. And so Paul is saying, don't become idolatrous. Whatever your idolatry may look like, whatever, whatever, whatever it's mystical, new agey, whatever this stuff is that, that you're dabbling with, don't kid yourself into thinking that that stuff doesn't matter. It does matter. Several years ago, um, the General Assembly of one of the, the liberal mainline denominations in the U.S., uh, they had a Muslim who stood to offer prayer to Allah that those present might be led, and I'm quoting now, in the path of all the prophets, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Jesus listed there as if He's merely a prophet alongside Isaac and Moses and even Muhammad. When that happened, what was going on? You see, that sounds like a wonderful moment of interfaith fellowship. Really? Paul says that that's compromise. Paul says that that's not congruent. That that, that doesn't work. They were engaged in something. They were engaged in a form of idolatry. So I want you to notice as he closes out this section what he talks about, and that is the appropriate jealousy of God. The appropriate jealousy of God. Now, now how does the Lord respond? Look at verse number 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Our God is a jealous God. Now, don't think of that in the same way that you would think of, oh, you know, my middle school boyfriend got jealous every time he saw me talking to another guy in the hallway. Or that, that's, that's not the kind of jealousy we're talking about here. This is an appropriate jealousy. In, in, in what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, when God is described as a jealous God, it's always said in the context of God's response to idolatry. To idolatry. The Lord is appropriately jealous of our love. He wants all of it. So whenever together we observe the Lord's Supper, we're we're being given extraordinary reminders of the lengths to which the Lord our God has gone to secure and win our life. He gave his son up to the cross. 
His body torn by the lashes and the nails. We just sang about it a few moments ago. Jesus Christ dying for us, shedding his blood for us. And you know, when we come to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are bound to him as a bride to her husband by covenant. And next month, by the grace of God, Christy and I will celebrate 32 years of marriage. I'm going to tell you something. If on July the 29th, 1989, we had stood at the front of Southridge Baptist Church in Conneaut, Ohio to exchange our vows, and I had somehow changed those vows to say that I promised to be faithful and true to her at least 80% of the time, you think that would have been a problem? You better believe it. Okay, okay, but I'll go to 85%. How about that? I mean, that's most of the time, right? Even 95% of the time. You think she'd be fine with me being unfaithful 5% of the time? Absolutely not. You see, that's, that's ridiculous. And yet, if we're completely honest, we tend to try to live out our Christian lives in that way. As long as I'm giving him 95%, I'm doing pretty good. And as we talked about this morning during summer sessions, we feel like that's better than most people. Because there's a whole lot of people out there, it's probably like 50-50. Not me, I'm 95%. (laughs) We're talking about total, absolute faithfulness to God. So when we rationalize and we indulge in any form of idolatry in the name of whatever, to to appease the, the spirit of the age or whatever you want to call it, we provoke the Lord to jealousy, an appropriate jealousy. We are not stronger than he. Here's the thing. You cannot eat at his table And at the same time, eat at the table of another lover. The issue here is idolatry and a divided heart. And so, Heavenly Father, today we we thank you for this instruction, For this clear teaching that we are to, in every way, flee idolatry. Lord, help us to see that idolatry is not just some ancient concept that people like the Corinthians had to deal with. That's very much an issue in our day as well. It might look a little different, but fundamentally it's the same. It's an unfaithfulness to the Lord our God. So Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, you would drive these truths home to our hearts. That we not be content with a 95% or a 98% or even a 99.5%. Help us, Lord, to understand that if you are not Lord of all, then you're not Lord at all. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in ways 
that would honor and glorify you, that would demonstrate a faithful love for you and for your word. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, with your help, help us, Lord, to guard our hearts. To be mindful every day how important it is that we love not the world or the things of the world. Because we love you supremely. And we give you all the praise and the honor and glory now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.